fall. You don't fail. Thank you. Amen. It's in that knowledge that right now as we begin this morning that we think um, kind of out to uh, what's been happening in our area this week. And before we go any further about anything, and even as the students are leaving, ask that uh, we would just take a, a few seconds this morning in a remembrance of those who have who've died in San Bernardino, the tragedy that's gone on there, and the pain that um, our area is feeling and the nation is feeling. And then uh, we're going to take a minute and pray. And some of us may be wondering, how do we pray? And there's always kind of a, a set of pieces here. First of all, obviously, for those who are hurt, we want to pray for the, their quick healing. We want to pray for the families that have lost loved ones in the tragedy. In fact, I met someone who uh, at In-N-Out just yesterday who had worked in that office two years ago, lost eight friends. And it's just a, a huge, you can't imagine even having to deal with that many losses. And so just the, the, the tragedy and all the different politicizations, we, we want to pray instead for the, the unification of our country around, around um, just love and trust and, and seeing God move. But we want to pray that we wouldn't have a vengeance cycle, but that the government would do what it should do and the church should do what it does best, which is to preach the gospel. And then also we want to pray that... Um, that God would be glorified in all this. So we're going to take this uh, next few seconds and we're going to kind of be silent if you want to pray to God or just be silent out of honor and then we're going to pray together. So would you join with me? Father, we... Thank you that you are the God who is over all the nations. You're declared King of kings and Lord of lords. You hold every situation in your hand. And you know every heart and every mind of every human being on this planet, no matter what they do. And you will judge one day all the wickedness of every human being. And you will be right to judge them according to various severities for the evils that they've committed. Thank you that you are not a God who just makes every evil equal, but you see that there are some worse than others. And we thank you that you are willing to deal with those things. And Father, for those who are in need of great healing right now, we pray for the physicians. We pray that you'd be that great physician and use them to heal these people. God, that you would be exalted in that second, that those who have lost loved ones, they would be comforted and they would know that you are faithful, even in the midst of tragedy even in the midst of just evil. Father, we lift up the Muslim communities, God, that they would be introspective and they would pray and think through what is going on amongst their, their faiths. God, there are various forms of it. And Lord, that they would be willing to stand up and denounce these kind of acts. And God, we pray instead that there would be a great move of your gospel, that these men and women who long to see peace and enter into heaven and have a guarantee would find it through Jesus Christ. And God, that you would enable us as a people to be gracious and motivated to love our neighbors and preach the gospel more than ever. We pray, God, just for the persecuted church in the other countries who face this all the time. That you'd give them strength and that they would continue to preach and there'd be a great revival in the Muslim world. 
that, they would, that millions and millions would come to know you, Lord Jesus. And that God, in all these things, you would show yourself powerful and capable because you are. And it is in Jesus' name that we all pray. Amen. One of the things that can lead us in this time period with, um, with kind of these terrorist concepts is, is a sense of fear, a sense of confusion, a sense of wonderment about what is going on and how did we get here? And, and we'll look for political answers and we'll look for all kinds of different ways to, to deal with the situation. And some worldviews, they'll say it's just survival of the fittest and they just have to lay it aside. Others will say that it's, it's, a, it's a rage of good against evil. And what the danger thing here is going on in all the San Bernardino stuff is, is, the radical, is the radical overwhelming existential reality of what is happening. I, I mean, give you an example. When my wife first texted me and told me, hey, there was a shooting in San Bernardino, my first response was, there's always a shooting in San Bernardino. Um, what, what do you mean? It's on Waterman Avenue. There's always one on Waterman Avenue. You know, there, and just the reality, this suddenly is a national level that it was on cruise ships being talked about. Kind of puts us like, you know, you're not LA. You're, you're the Inland Empire. This is our territory. This is where we live. You expect it in LA or maybe in a big city, but not here in our area. And so when you start to wonder, there's a sense of an underpinning feeling of anger and, and a little bit maybe a prejudice of, of a fear of, a, of an anger and a racism or even something like that can crop up. In fact, some people didn't even respond to what they perceived as a threat for fear of prejudice and for fear of racism. And we're completely confused. What do we do with this mess? How do we, how do we go through this? And I kind of want to talk about prejudice a little bit this morning. I want to talk a little bit about this. And it's interesting because it's in everybody. Let's not get ourselves um, on, on some holy platform. We all struggle with it at some level. It's kind of in you as a child as you begin to discover. In fact, the only reason I know that is, is that I've met enough children in my life to, to see that. But one of the particular incidences happened here outside of the church. My wife was talking to one of our good friends here at the church. And um, my, one of my sons, and he was little at the time, like four, was in the backseat with his brothers and sister. And... And they're all, you know, she leaves and walks away. And, and, and just out of the mouth, to my wife's horror, comes this statement. I, I, I don't like her. And, and she, my wife's like, why? What, what, what is going on? She's like, I don't like her. I don't, I don't like the color of her skin. That was his statement. Now, we don't teach that stuff in my house. So don't, you're like, what are you teaching? No, don't get off my back for a second. This is childhood. And when you engage something and encounter something you're not used to, there can be a pushback. And so suddenly my wife's into like, no, 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 no. Hold on a second. That's not how we talk. That's not what, you know, trying to retrain is and teach him. You know, this isn't how we think and how we believe. My children are the ones who got really into it, though. They're like, no, they're made in the image of God. You can't say that. That's, that's evil. That's wrong. Besides, your cousin has dark skin. And so so that was the reality because he's a little tanner than my other kids. And so there's this, suddenly he's kind of shamed in the position. And we are so scared to talk about this, you won't even laugh at the fact that that's kind of funny from a kid. It is funny from a child because they don't know any better. It's not funny from an adult. If our children don't grow up, if you haven't grown up, if we haven't grown up, to set aside these differences, to engage human beings as made in the image of God, well, of course it's not funny. But the reality is that that's where we're at. And what's interesting is we would rather make light of our Christmas time than see the power of what's really going on in, the, in this Christmas text. 
It's interesting that we've hit this. This week, we're going to be talking about this, the Three Amigos Christmas special. We just picked the Three Amigos because there were three of them. But how many of you guys remember the Three Caballeros, the Disney, the Disney movie, right? That was the Christmas special. Probably should have picked that one, but Three Amigos is funnier. And, and, and what you got here are three wise guys. Three wise men, three kings. We all sing the, sing the song, right? We three kings of Orient are. Do we see what we've done? Probably not because we don't know our history anymore. Like we said last week with Santa Claus, as you begin to move forward and you start looking at who these people are, you, it's a totally different picture. The same thing is true with these three wise men, these three amigos of a sense who have come into the story. In fact, what's interesting is, first of all, we've turned them into three. We don't know how many there were. Uh, Eastern Orthodox cultures actually think there were 12. Um, many of us, it may have been multiples. It may have been upwards of 20. It could be down to, down to seven. We, we don't know, but it was probably not three. We get three because there were three gifts laid at Jesus' feet. On the other hand, what's interesting is that we ceased calling them wise men, which is a bad translation anyway, because we think of like university professors when we talk about wise men. And what we end up with is actually three kings. Now that comes from uh, a medieval interpretation from Psalm chapter 72, verse 11, that the kings of the nations will come and bow before him. So that's interesting too. But then what happens is when you dive into this reality is that they're not kings. In fact, we named them. Gaspar, Malchior, and Belshazzar. Couldn't we have gotten better names than that? I mean, I can't even remember them. And it's because they were supposed to be foreign kings or something like that. No, 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 no. These guys are not, none of these things. And what we've done is when we took these men who show up in the Gospel of Matthew at the event that we know of as Christmas, we suddenly lose a very important lesson about prejudice, a very powerful lesson about how we deal with people and, what, and how we deal with people who are different than us. Religiously, spiritually, and yes, physically. Now, let's take a look at this then. Um, who are these wise men? What are, who, who are these guys that show up? And, and, and what we want to see is the wise men shouldn't be actually in the story. They were foreign pagan magicians. And what do I mean by that? Really, in the ancient world, there was a large amount of prejudice. There was a racism by the Jewish people towards anyone who was not Jewish. Even if you were half Jewish and you lived in another, like Samaria or Idumea, different, different areas, they said, no, 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 you're not a, you're not Jewish. And so there was a very strong first century prejudice. They called them the Gentiles. That's, that was the name of anybody that wasn't Jewish. And as they went through this process, they, they, wouldn't want to, they wouldn't eat with you. They didn't want you in their houses. They didn't want to connect with you. And suddenly, we see these guys show up in the book of Matthew, kind of roaming in, and they, they don't look like everybody else. In fact, they have a different name. They're not called wise men. They're actually the term magi. Now, magi, it sounds, like, it sounds like we just dropped the, word, the C at the end and you get magic. And that's where we get the word magic from. The magi were, were powerfully interesting characters in the ancient world and, and, and known even today in their place. And so they shouldn't be in the story because of who they are. First strike, we'll give them three strikes that were against them. The first strike is that they were Persian. Now, I don't have a map up here, but I want you to imagine with me. You have a map of Rome, which has the boot of Italy here. Greece is like a triangle right here. Turkey is like a big hand sticking out here. And then you got a big flat Africa on the bottom. Israel's over here. Okay, so you got this picture of this, of this 
Roman Empire that surrounded this entire area. There was another empire that sat on this side of Rome called Parthia, and they fought constantly. In fact, Parthia was the only empire in the world that could match Rome. And they didn't like each other. They had a peace and a truce at roughly this time of, of history, so that when they met each other, they wouldn't engage in war. In fact, just 40 years earlier, before Jesus was born, there was a whole, the Parthians marched and killed, uh, captured the high priest and a couple other guys and marched him out. And so this whole situation is kind of a fire pot. The Parthians are a little bit of a scary kind of people. They ride on horseback with, with bows and arrows and could shoot while riding. I mean, that's right out of um, Brave, the movie, you know, that, that was them, literally. And it was unheard of in the Roman Empire. And these guys come from this land, Persia. We know a modern day Iraq, Iran, and Syria. And Afghanistan and, and Pakistan were also located in this place called Parthia. And so to the, to the Romans, they were dangerous politically. To the Jews, they were dangerous spiritually. So the Romans, Romans didn't want anything to do with the Parthians. And so when these guys show up, they're representatives of a foreign power. And they're showing up saying, hey, show us the king of the Jews. We want, we want to meet these guys. We want to meet this person. And these, so these guys march in. The strike one is every Jewish person in the world seeing these guys roll through going, we don't, we don't want to talk to these guys. We don't want to deal with these guys. But then strike two is that they were magicians. I want to stop here. We, don't, we think of we three kings of the Orient. We don't think of we three sorcerers of the Orient. That's what these guys are. They're sorcerers. Magicians. And not, not, not like Houdini. Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Hey, bull eagle. You know, not that, no, Rocky, you know, not that thing, okay? That's not the kind of magic we're talking about here. We're talking about two forms of magic in the ancient world called divination. All divination was calling upon the divine spirits and the powers of the universe to give them insight and information about how to control the world of chance or to control the future. And so these men were experts at it. In fact, Babylon, where they probably come from, were known as the top dogs in all the field of astrology, of um, oh, it's called Augury, which is really weird, and we'll get into that for a second, but it, it, all these different kind of divinations. And these people would chant magical chants, and they would do it regularly. So I'm sure as they were walking, they were doing like, and they're walking through Podunk, Bethlehem. People are going, okay, who are these guys? They're like hiding in their homes, locking their doors if they had locks. The reality is these guys were magicians, sorcerers, diviners, astrology was actually born mainly in Babylon, imported through Greek to give us what we have today as tarot cards, palm readings, all this stuff that we know in New Age sciences and stuff like that, comes from this Babylonian pagan practices. And in fact, was banned in Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. It says, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. That was a different religion, but it still fit. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer. That is these guys. These guys are the teachers of this stuff. They're the pros. In fact, we know that they're pros because in the book of Daniel chapter 2, they actually are there as the king's King Nebuchadnezzar's top dogs. These are the guys who are supposed to tell him what his dreams meant and what he was supposed to do next. And so you see, they commanded the magicians, the magi. So Daniel would have known them. All the Israelites would have, the Jews knew these guys as, oh, these guys are the, these guys are the crazy magic people. Well, what kind of magic were they doing? 
First kind of magic they would do is called astrology. They would look into the stars. They had divided up the heavens into the zodiac as we know it today. And then divided even further so that when the stars would move into particular locations, they would have particular interpretations. It was all arbitrary. They just did it because that's how they understood it. But it was based on the movement of the sun and the moon. And so they would bring all of this information up and try to answer questions about the future. If that didn't work, another way they would do divination is called augury. They would sacrifice an animal, then open up its innards and kind of look around and feel through the intestines and the liver in order to interpret omens and signs from the gods. They still do this in many cultures today, in, in uh, many uh, aborigine cultures in Africa and South America and in Indonesia. This is a very common practice known throughout the world. Strange, isn't it? Because we don't do that stuff. We just read the horoscope in the newspaper. You know, it's just like, they would do horoscope-like stuff. They would chant, and they would call upon demons and angels in order to attract and empower themselves in order to bring about the breaking of what they considered um, fate, which held them bound. So all these pieces are, are in, their, in their mythology and their thinking. And so these two, these, this second strike is huge. These guys are like, you know, dark arts people. I mean, you don't usually invite these guys to your baby showers, right? I mean, can you imagine that? No, I invited Aunt Susie. She's a witch. You know, she's just coming in, asked her to do a blessing with chicken blood. It's really cool. And that's what these guys would do. And these guys are showing up to say, we want to see the Messiah. And all the Jewish people are like, we don't even want to talk to you guys. You shouldn't even be in this story. Why are you showing up in this? To make matters worse, they were evangelists for a foreign religion. One of the interesting passages about the Magi that you can run into is the discovery of what religion they actually belong to. It's a religion called Zoroastrianism. Anybody ever heard of Zoroastrianism? There's a few always. Zoroastrianism still exists today in Persia. It's, one of the, it's a popular religion in Persia because it was birthed there by a man named Zarthura. Zarthura, and I never get his name right. I probably said it wrong there. But Zarthura was a, had a view and a belief that the world was centered upon two gods that were constantly at battle, one fully evil and one fully good. It's a bit of Star Wars involved here, isn't it? But this isn't Christianity. If you think Satan's as powerful as God, you got the wrong religion. That's Zoroastrianism not Christianity. God is all-powerful. He's all-powerful over, over Satan and all the demons in the world. But the Zoroastrians had said, no, 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 they're equals. They are battling it out constantly. There's this give and pull between good and evil, and it's always back and forth. In fact, from there, you'll see that there's a whole archangels, and they denote down into evil archangels, which we call demons, and good archangels and angels. And some of that was pulled into Judaism as an argument, but it was because it was already latent in, in their faith as they argued this, but they didn't take it on. But Zoroastrianism had this very strong belief system about what you did and how you did and the magic you could call upon on all the angels and all this stuff. And the Magi were the priestly class of the Zoroastrians. They were the pastors and the evangelists, and they were known to be in every major city of the world standing around going, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. No, no, just kidding. The, the reality, they were standing around preaching their Zoroastrianism to whoever they came to. And we wonder why they showed up to talk to the, to say, I want to see the king of the Jews. They came to entreat him, to literally lay out gifts before the king as a way of entering into evangelism, most likely. So now you're inviting somebody to your 
God's inviting somebody who's of a, of a, of a dark magic, a foreign power, and going to evangelize for the wrong religion to the baby shower of the Messiah. This is a totally different picture. You imagine these guys walking in with their large caravan of 30 some odd people and attache and all that stuff going on with them and they're, they're, they're walking with their mists or whatever. And they're looking up at their stars and they're pulling out this chart and they're looking at that thing and they're, they're talking to each other about the, the power of, of Azrael and this thing and that and you're just like, pull the shade. I don't know who these people are. Don't go near them. And yet, God did put them in the story. They had three strikes. I think God plays baseball like my son Andrew. He's only five. He gets as many strikes as he can until he hits the ball. And God gives such great grace to these men. And we forget it. In fact, let's look at this as we go to the next, to the next point, that God brought these men into the story to, to challenge our prejudice, to challenge the Jewish prejudice, and I think it challenges us today. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Let's actually look at the story now with all that background there. We're going to go through verses 1 through 15 together. If you don't have a Bible, they're available on your seats, and you find on page 807, and you'll be right there with us to see how this goes. It starts off, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men or magi from the east came to Jerusalem. They're saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. We'll talk about that another time. But And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where in the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For it is written by the prophet, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, by, by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for, you shall, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people." And so here's the picture. These men wander in from the east very far. They've traveled from modern-day Iraq. And they've traveled up north, over through Kyrgyzstan, all the way up there by the, by the seas up in that area, down through Syria to avoid the desert and straight down into Israel. A long, long journey for them to go through. And they've come to this territory, they've come to this land, and they say why they're here. We saw a star and we're here to worship the king of the Jews. It's really interesting that these men come a long way to pay homage to Jesus, our Messiah. These men, who shouldn't have known anything about it, had massive amounts of Jews living among them because God had placed those Jewish people there and preached a message about a star that would be rising one day. Uh, and this is from a guy named Balaam. You've probably heard of Balaam. Balaam's an Old Testament story in the book of Numbers. You can look it up someday. But basically, he's so stubborn, God causes his donkey to talk to him. And so that leads to some really good youth group jokes that I won't say right now. And the... Um, the reality is that this man preaches a prophecy over Israel one day and speaks of the star that will rise, meaning the Messiah. Well, these men probably knew that prophecy being astrologers, grabbed that concept and were watching. And so they see it and they start to come. But think how far away these guys are. Spiritually. Territorially, I mean, geographically, how far away they are. And I wanted to remind us of something, and I think this is what's going on. It's a mystery, Paul will say later in the book of Ephesians. A mystery that God was revealing 
And he started with these magi, that the Gentiles, the nations were going to be included. They weren't going to be excluded. And I want to challenge us that we are to be reminded not to think anyone is too far from the gospel. No one is too far from the gospel. These men knew pagan arts. They were, and yet God said, I want to bring you near. These guys were evangelists for another religion, yet God said, I want to bring you near. I mean, do we really think that um, evangelists of a false religion from the Middle East can't come to Christ? Who are we talking about here now? Suddenly dawned on me that suddenly we're really speaking about Muslims. The modern day evangelists within the Middle East who are coming to all the nations in their various ways to propagate a, re, a view about God that honestly is not intimate and not knowing, binds you into all kinds of rules and rituals in which you can, you can ask God to give you blessing. It's the same religions. And as we deal with this, I want to ask, are, are we so sure that what happened in San Bernardino can't be rebutted by simply realizing many of them are closer to the gospel than we could probably ever imagine? And that maybe God is awaking and shaking the church back up to the reality that he is out to reach a people. Are Hindus really that far from God? Then maybe it's just the preaching of the gospel one time that locks into their heads and suddenly they see the need for a savior because these men do not and these women do not have an intimacy with God. They put us to shame. They pray every day, five times a day, and yet they don't know God. You see, for us, he put his spirit in us. For us, he bore our sins and took them away. On the cross. For us, he revealed himself through his word and the preaching of this message that we could be saved from our own sinfulness. Do you realize the Muslim world knows their sinfulness? They get it. They're doing all kinds of works to get out of it. They desperately want to be in heaven, so much so that people are fooling them that if they kill others, they will enter in automatically. When all they need to hear is it's a free gift, all they have to do is receive it. That God's already provided the way through Jesus Christ. Hindus sit on roads and move pebbles after pebbles for miles upon miles to deal with their bad karma and sin from their lives so that they won't have to suffer it in the future. They bathe in the Ganges River, which is full of filth and human feces and dead things because they believe it gives them good karma. They'll go to lengths to give themselves diseases so that they will just simply hear that they have a chance. Don't think they're far. Many of them long to have the knowledge that you and I take for granted and turn into fairy tales at Christmas time. That the God of the heavens and the earth has come to bear our sin, to dwell with us, to teach us how to live and give it to us freely. It's not something we should take for granted. It's something that is so near and so close to so many. And I find it fascinating that as we read this, look again what they said. He says this, they said, Bethlehem, they came to Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod. And they said this, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. What a weird thing. We saw in Deuteronomy, God's outlawed the, right, the divination. And yet what we see here is God used the very divination these men understood and were experts at to capture their attention. Hey, guys, you want to know what I'm doing? Okay, this one time I'll show you. 
and they got it right. And when there's a king being born in Israel, and they got up and they marched miles upon miles, dedicated to this one thing that they've seen, longing to find out an answer. What does this mean? Where is this taking us? And they come to the one spot that he should be in the palace of Herod, and he's not there. And yet, notice what happens next. On all their faithful journeying, on all their stuff, they come to Herod's palace, and Herod then says, Bring me the priests and the scribes of the people. And he acquired them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, and then they quoted the scripture. The star didn't save them. The star didn't give them the answer. The star started them on their journey. The scripture told them where to look. The scripture gave them the direct answer. Many have seen that in this passage is a simple truth in scripture. And it's this, that God gives more light to those who seek him. God will bring a crack of light and he'll call you forward. And if you're willing to actually invest in the examination and seek for God, he will not let you down. He says in Jeremiah, seek me and you shall find me if you seek me with all of your heart. Seek me. Really search. I challenge you. If you're a questioner, you're not a Christian, but you're here with your spouse or your family member, trust him. Trust just that first step. Ask that first question. Examine it with a real open heart. Obey just that one little piece, that one little step, and watch as he gives you confirmed stance. when, When you seek for God, he gives you light, and then as you obey that, he gives you more. Nabil Qureshi, in his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, lays out one of the most fascinating stories I've ever read. If there's ever a book you want to read, you should read that one. But he was a man who honestly grew up in a, in a home that took its lineage directly from Muhammad. A very, very honorable position in Islam. And as, the, as he grew up, knowing this, he would go to all the great, all the great tributes and stuff and all the, big, all the big things in England. And then they moved to the United States and he went to college. And one young, lowly evangelical decided, was praying desperately, God, just give, I want to I reach one Muslim in my life. And so he connected himself to Nabil. And as he talked with Nabil, he'd ask him questions. They went to a Bible study, and Nabil swore that Islam could beat every, every apologetic question in the world. And um, his buddy said, no, Christianity can't. I think you're wrong. And Nabil was challenged and began to examine his own faith. And the more he examined it, and the more he studied the Word of God and the Bible, at the same time, he began to not, not be able to answer questions. And more doubts began to creep in until he finally picked up a several very large tomes of the Hadith, which is their interpretation and reading about the life of, his, of Muhammad and Islam, came to realize that people who were propagating a more violent version were probably more correct from these particular Hadiths. Freaked out and a little upset, not knowing what to do, he just pushed it away and ignored it until God decided, okay, I'm going to do something for you, buddy. He gave him a dream. Craziest chapter I've ever read in my life when he starts telling his dream. And, he wake, and in the dream, he wakes up, he understands, he has all the details, but he understands nothing. Calls his mother, freaked out that he's had this dream. And his mother pulls off a divination text, an Islamic divination text that interprets signs of dreams. And every time he gives something, it interprets it. And every single time, it directs him back to Jesus, back to Jesus, back to Jesus. And he couldn't do anything but surrender to the gospel he'd already heard. Dreams are so common amongst Muslims at this time. There are missionary strategies right now simply to go across the seas and say, have you had a dream about Jesus? And invariably, most of them will say yes. 
Are you the one who's supposed to talk to me? Things like this. God is opening the hearts of Muslims across the world. And perhaps what's going on is the rise of terrorism and the rise of these horrible situations that you and I are seeing is to shake up the very firm foundation they think they had in trusting their authorities and to suddenly go, if this is where our authorities lead us, perhaps now we need to see if this is true. And maybe they're just simply waiting for the Christian church to be bold enough and to stand up and preach a message of hope and truth in which God himself bore our sins on the cross, rose from the dead to give us peace with him. True peace that unifies people, dissolves prejudice, and makes us one family, all made in the image of God. Maybe it's just waiting for us. Maybe the Hindu has actually been given a horribly difficult religion so it would shackle them to this karmic cycle in their mind so that they would just long to be set free. And we have the message. Maybe the atheist is at war with God because they just hate the anger in their own heart and they're just not sure about justice and they're just not realizing that they've just accepted something that leads them away from justice and they long for the justice that God brings. Perhaps the Jewish man is still locked into his law over and over and over again so that he might find the one who fulfilled the law and sets him free. Have we ever thought that maybe God is just giving them light in their own religion to lock them down so they might have a heart and a longing for the true and living God who has given us freedom? What potential, what opportunity do we have if it just means going next door to your neighbor? You don't want to go next door because you're afraid and you're prejudiced. No, you go next door because Jesus already told us what? Love your neighbor as yourself. You want to conquer terrorism in your neighborhood? Know every name on your street. Know their sufferings and their problems. Be invited in their homes. And if you see something suspicious, yes, you say something because you want to protect the neighbors you love. The reality is that we're all afraid of our neighbors. But what people on this planet should be afraid of no one except the Christians who have absolute lock that you and I have eternity ahead of us in which there will be no sin, in which there will be no pain, in which there will be no suffering, in which there will be no prejudice, in which there will be no racism, in which there will be no evil of any stripe. No disease and no death. To kill a Christian is simply to give them what they've always longed for. Why should we fear? Should we not love all of, should we not, Olive Branch, love our neighbors with an intense love? Because they're not that far away. They may have already been given light. I love it because check out what happens next. These guys get this word and they hear about it from these, these priests and scribes of the people. That's really the Sadducees and the Pharisees as we learn of them later. And so Herod summons the wise men secretly. He gets the Magi together and says, hey, hey. He ascertained what time they saw the star. And then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. They're like, okay, cool. This guy wants us to go find this guy. This is awesome. So they march off. In full faith, it's in Bethlehem, but the star guides them on anyway. It goes on. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy because it rested over the place where the child was. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshiped him. And so these guys take up the very truth and they trust it. There's this king that's been promised to Israel. They heard the scribes of the Pharisees say, and they said, yeah, I'm in. I'm there. I'm good. Who wasn't with them? 
There are no scribes. There are no chief priests following this entourage to go, hey, didn't our Messiah is here? No, their religious prejudice kept them away. Their religious prejudice kept them from being able to see what God was doing, that he was opening up a message to the whole world. And it's a danger for us to get ourselves into that situation where we find ourselves in the same place. But they, these magi, they trusted, and so should we trust in God's promises too. Do we believe that Jesus said he will build his church? Do we believe that he has said the gospel is the way of salvation? If we trust that, we should share that. Why are we afraid? These men trusted in a God they didn't even know. And God gave them more and gave them more and gave them more to the point he gave them a dream and got them out of there so that they wouldn't find themselves in danger. Finally, they come and they, they lay down their gifts. They open it up and they said, they opened the treasures. They offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in dream not to return to Herod, they departed by their own country by another way. And there's all kinds of stuff in the gold and frankincense and myrrh. Oh, this represents the royalty. And let's just set them aside. Basically, those were pretty common gifts given to kings when there was homage given. So there's nothing theologically significant necessarily in there. It is simply, these are the gifts that were given. And it was likely given by the Magi because that's what was given. But what is interesting about these gifts, however, is that they were gifts. They didn't have to do it. It was an homage. It was honoring to this baby. Do you realize the flip has happened? You and I have been given gifts. Each one of you, if you claim yourself a Christian, is a gift. God has specifically given to you to use to care and love each other. And I'll be honest, too many of us in our church are sitting on our gifts. They were willing to let them go and lay them at the feet. Are you willing to bring your gift and use it in your worship? for God. I mean, you, our coffee is going self-serve because people haven't stepped in. Right now, your cars are unmonitored because security people haven't stepped up. How's that feel? Just, just feel that for a second right there. No, just kidding. We're having trouble filling positions because people tell us I'm too busy. Uh, maybe once in a while. I don't want to sign up. I don't want to commit. These guys came hundreds and thousands of miles to lay down gifts. Christ gave himself for us to give us gifts. Now, you're like, Craig, you're really laying it on, you're like heavy, man. It's like guilt trip. I'm a pastor. What do you expect? So come on. <laughs> I want to goad you and challenge you to care about each other. This isn't about just us getting stuff done. This is about us loving on each other, caring about each other. Love your neighbor. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Use the gift God gave you. Fan it into a flame. Let it burn for him. Be used by God. These men were willing at least to give their small gift they had, even though they hadn't known him yet. And it's a challenge. It's a picture. But really the biggest picture of all these things I want to land on and end with is this. They should remind us that we shouldn't be in the story either. Think about it. Not too many of us in this room were Jewish. Not too many of us in this room were faithful Jewish. Most all of us in this room, at some place, our sin eliminated us. Our nationality eliminated us. Even our religiosity eliminated us because we worshiped ourselves or another God. Everyone in this room at some point in their life has to admit that you're not born a Christian, even if you were raised in a Christian home. 
At some point, you had to repent away from your own selfishness. You had to receive Christ. Nobody's born into the faith. Just make that clear again. But look at how God has overcome it. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. If you want to flip over there, please do so. I'm just going to read. I don't have time to really dive into it deeply. If you want to hear a, a deeper portion, you can go to the sermons on archived about uh, Romans, and you can look there. But here's how it reads. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not when you were cleaned up and perfect. Not when you had figured it all out. Not when you got it down and you were the super saint. No, when we were ungodly, he died for us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified, made right by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from him, or by him from the wrath of God? And the reality is this. Yes, our sin has caused us to be on the wrong side of God's ledger. We should be judged in his wrath. And yet, what did he do? He overcame it. No one is too far. Hear me, you're not too far. I don't care what you've done. God already knows it and he's loved you so much. Even while you are in the mess that you're in, even while you sinned in the way that you have, he's loved you by sending his son to bear your sins on the cross. He goes on. For if while we were enemies, verse 10 says, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved for his life. I don't care if you're an atheist. If you're here today and you're like, I'm Muslim, you're Hindu, Baha'i, whatever you find yourself claiming as your cultural heritage or your religion, hear me, even though we may be enemies to the God of the Bible, he still loves you and he's died for you, even while we were enemies. He will accept you, he will receive you, and he's given this gift of Christ on the cross for you, for everyone. If you'll simply trust him, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, though through whom we have now received reconciliation to be brought near. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all saved. Don't trust that you've got the right pedigree. Don't think you've got the right family because the family we're born into is the family of Adam and Adam messed it all up for us. But once you've trusted in Christ, he changes your family. You become in his line. Born again into a new family, forgiven of sin, made new and with a reality that one day in the resurrection, when God comes, all things will be made right. All evil will be judged. And all sin will end, death and pain. And a new life and a new reality will be made for us. And here's the thing. This isn't to say, well, those people don't get it because they didn't trust Jesus. No, the point is none of us were supposed to get it. No one on earth was supposed to get it, but he gave it as a gift. Do you hear, please hear me. They gave it as a gift, a present. Available to everyone that's hearing these words. Everyone that's not hearing these words. And these magi are a picture of God's inclusion and this gift. 
None of us should be in the story. But God's grace is that good and he loves us that much. I hope that you would receive that gift and that you would be included because God is calling you to be a part of that. And those of us who have received it, do not be afraid to give it in your neighborhoods, in the nations, for he is calling all men unto himself now. Would you bow your heads with me? Right now, you're here, and if you have been, if God's speaking to you, and right now you need to receive his gift, it is there, it is available. I want to give you this chance, and what you're doing is it's just a simple trust. He'll give you, he'll reveal more as you go, but it's a simple trust saying, that's me, I need that forgiveness. What you do is just put your hand up. I want to give you a way to express that trust. That hand up, you're saying, I'm, I, God, I got nothing to do but trust you. Where you are, if, if you want to start, you just start with the conversation with God and just let him know that you know you're a, you're a sinner and that you want to turn away from that. Ask him to put your sin on Jesus and let him know that you want to receive his gift. Thank him that he's forgiven you. Ask him for that new life and to lead you on through the rest of this one. God, I lift up those in this room who may be in this small, simple way asking for that aid and that help to trust you, to be forgiven of their sins because you love them that much. God, for all of us, would you just give us that peace now of that assurance that you've given us eternity with you as a gift. Thank you. Thank you so much. Help us then to share this gift with others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.